Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now that you worship, now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all life and breath and everything else. From one man, He made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, 
We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Katie. It's lovely to have you here at Emmanuel today. When I was first uh, told today that I was to preach on the theme of the self-sufficiency of God, I told God that it wasn't a subject to which I'd given much thought, and that if he preferred, it might be better if he spoke today instead of me. So I'll just give him the opportunity to do that. Well, I thought that might happen, so I did prepare something just in case. Let's pray together. Lord, open our eyes to read your word. Guide our minds to understand it correctly. Warm our hearts to respond to it. And enable us to draw on your inexhaustible strength. Amen. When I was given this subject, I wasn't left in the lurch. I was given a book to read, a book called None Like Him by Jen Wilkin, with the subtitle, Ten Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing. They include chapters that we've looked at already in this series that remind us that God is infinite and eternal, chapters telling us that God is omnipresent all-knowing, all-powerful. And chapter 4 explains that God is self-sufficient. Let me begin by trying to summarize that chapter in my own words with some of Jen Wilkins' words uh, thrown in. She begins with the illustration I drew your attention to earlier in the service, the American equivalent of the Duracell bunny. That amused me. Because there is a member of this congregation, and as far as I can see, he's not here today, who took to comparing me with the Duracell bunny when I first turned up at the Friday fitness group a few years ago, rather younger and more energetic than I am now. As I explained, the Duracell bunny keeps on and on going long after bunnies powered by lesser batteries have stopped. By a quirk of intellectual property law, which I won't go into, the pink bunny icon used in North America is advertising a different brand of of battery. So Jen Wilkin knows of it as the Energizer Bunny. And it's accompanied there by a tagline, it just keeps going and going and going. And her point is that unlike the Energizer Bunny, We humans cannot keep on going and going and going. Only God can do that, she says. God is, in her words, a self-contained source of perpetual and perfect sustenance. And she continues, For all eternity he is perfectly provided for 
in and of himself, needless of any aid, unflagging in strength, never hungry or thirsty, experiencing no lack. When I read that, I think it's important to remember, although she doesn't spell it out, that she is speaking here about God, not about Jesus of Nazareth, who we believe was God incarnate. He did experience the full hunger, thirst, flagging energy, tears, needs, and other aspects of human frailty. He experienced them to the full. That, it seems to me, is being left to one side when Jen Wilkin writes, Our God is self-sufficient, needed by all, needful of nothing. Certainly not us. And that, she says, is news to some people who have been brought up to believe that God created human beings out of some need within himself for love and companionship. I'm not sure that I'd ever given that much thought before I read her book, but I can see what she is driving at. God did not make us in order to fulfill something that was lacking in himself. And she adds that this is God good news, because if God had created us because he needed us, we would most certainly let him down. So what the self-sufficiency of God boils down to, as Jen Wilkin expands on the theme, is that God has no needs. We, on the other hand, do need God. We were not created to be self-sufficient. We were designed to need God. And our God-given dependency is the other side of the coin. Now, In relation to one another, in relation to other people, self-reliance is a good quality to develop in ourselves and to encourage in our children. But if we become self-reliant in relation to God, then we are, in effect, denying our need of God. We become forgetful of God's provision in the past, oblivious to his blessings in the present, and indifferent to his presence in our future. We are trusting in ourselves alone. And that, leaving God out of the equation, was the mistake of the rich fool in the well-known parable. He amassed great wealth uh, and he decided to uh, store up all that he had and take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. In Jesus' words... He stored up things for himself, but was not rich towards God. To be self-sufficient where God is concerned would be a form of idolatry. Whenever we pray, we are expressing our dependency on God. We remind ourselves that we are not Duracell bunnies and that we need God. And Jen Wilkin ends her chapter with these words. Be quick to confess to God your tendency to trust your own resources rather than acknowledge him as your provider. Be quick to confess your needs to him and ask him to meet them. 
Now, the verse of Scripture on which Jen Wilkin relies most heavily to establish her belief that God is completely self-sufficient comes in the passage that Katie just read for us in Acts chapter 17. It's actually verse 25. It's part of the speech made by St. Paul to a meeting of the Areopagus in Athens, a prestigious council of elders, so-called after the building uh, in which they originally met. By the time Paul was there, which would have been about 51 AD, this council had lost much of its power, but it retained jurisdiction in matters of morality and religion. Paul found himself alone in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. And as he looked around, he saw that it was a city full of idols. Lumps of stone that were being worshipped as gods, man-made gods. And he began to share the good news about Jesus and the resurrection with all who would listen, both in the synagogue and in the marketplace. What he was saying were, were strange ideas to Athenian ears, and so he was invited to explain them further at a meeting of the Areopagus. And the idea of God's self-sufficiency is derived from verse 25. In fact, from an aside of just two words in Greek, which are translated as five words in English, as if he needed anything. Let's hear it in its context. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul wants the people of Athens, people who were used to making their own gods, making idols and shrines for their idols, to understand the greatness of the one true God who cannot be confined to a shrine or a temple. He explains that God doesn't need anything from us to make him complete and perfect. Rather, it's the other way around. We depend on him for life and breath and everything else. But we need to be careful not to read more into that than Paul was saying. And I think it's worth noting, uh, without exploring it, that the very next verse was for many years used by some churches to justify apartheid in South Africa. It would be wrong to conclude from that one sentence addressed to people who engaged in the worship of idols that there is nothing that our human hands can do for God. I believe there is an equally important balancing truth. Although God is self-sufficient and has no need of us, he hides it pretty well. He chooses to rely on people. And this is something that we see again and again throughout Scripture. When his people cried out to him from slavery in Egypt, God did not confront Pharaoh directly. He called Moses 
and sent him to challenge Pharaoh and ultimately to lead the people out of Egypt. It was not God who led his people into the so-called promised land. He called Joshua to do it in succession to Moses. God did not strike down the Midianites. He said to Gideon, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites. God did not anoint Saul and David in succession as kings of Israel. He told Samuel to do it. God did not speak to his people as a disembodied voice any more than he chose to do so this morning. He called prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Amos. And he gave each of them his message for their time and sent them to speak on his behalf, sometimes to confront the people, sometimes, as in the passage I read from Isaiah, to comfort them. God did not rebuild the walls of Jerusalem after the exile. Instead, he placed the desire to see them rebuilt on the heart of a man called Nehemiah and enabled him to achieve it. And if we turn to the New Testament, Jesus knew that the Father would not by some supernatural means inform the whole world of what he had done for them in Christ. So his parting instruction to his followers was to tell them to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, of course, all those leaders of Israel and the apostles who went out as leaders of the church had to rely on God to achieve what he desired. But equally, God chose to rely on them to hear his call and obey it. There may be exceptional circumstances where God speaks or intervenes directly in a, 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 what we would call a supernatural way. The conversion of Saul may be an example, though even there, God relied on an ordinary, little-known believer named Ananias to explain it to Saul. God's direct action is the exception, not the rule. Generally speaking, when it comes to bringing about his purposes here on earth, God chooses not to demonstrate his self-sufficiency, but to rely on his people. As Stu put it when we were speaking about this service earlier in the week, God wants to make us part of his story. So we mustn't read too much into Paul's statement that God is not served by human hands. The way it appeared to Teresa of Avila in the 16th century was... Uh, as I first recalled it, God has no hands but ours. That's not quite an accurate uh, quotation. So here is the full quotation. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth, but yours. 
Now, that does not mean that God is, is not self-sufficient. I'm sure Teresa of Avila understood that God didn't need her and doesn't need any other human being to make him complete. Indeed, she wrote a blessing on another occasion that ends, God alone suffices. But these words speak more to my experience than the theological idea of God's self-sufficiency. And I can only conclude that the self-sufficient God chooses, usually, to depend on his people to achieve his purposes. I'm reminded of a story I heard decades ago, so forgive me if you've heard this before. It was about a pious vicar uh, walking by as one of his parishioners was tending his front garden. And he commented how lovely it was to see God and humans working in harmony to produce such beauty. To which the man replied, you should have seen it when God had it to himself. <laughs> Understanding that God is self-sufficient can lead us to a healthy recognition of our dependence on him. But if we overemphasize it, the danger is that it leads us into laziness and neglect of our responsibility to be God's instruments for good in the world. So what's the significance of all this for us as believers in 2022? Let me end by sharing three very brief examples. First of all, sharing Jesus. It may be that you have neighbors who have never heard of Jesus or who have mistaken ideas of who Jesus was and what he did. It's very unlikely that God is going to give them a supernatural revelation of truth. It's much more likely that he will give you an opportunity to talk to them about what Jesus means to you. Secondly, social justice. We're acutely aware that many people in our own society as well, and many more worldwide are struggling even to feed themselves and heat them, their homes and provide for their families at the moment. It's very unlikely that God will intervene supernaturally to multiply the metaphorical loaves and fishes in their larders. But he does give us an opportunity every week to provide for their needs in practical ways, such as bringing something to put into the yellow box out there for the food bank, or supporting an organization like Tear Fund or International Needs in the work that they are doing in the places of greatest need in the world. And thirdly, climate change. This is the biggest long-term issue that the world faces today, what we call an existential threat. What the world is already experiencing in heat waves and wildfires and drought and floods, and the last two or three weeks in this country have shown us uh, all of that. What the world is already experiencing is the consequence of only 1.2 degrees centigrade of warming above pre-industrial levels. If we do nothing about it, the earth will become uninhabitable. The best that we can hope for is that world leaders will stick with their resolve to keep warming below 1.5 degrees centigrade. 
But we are nowhere near achieving that at the moment. Now, I believe that God could, in his omnipotence, solve the problem by miraculous intervention. Perhaps by, this is my idea, and I've told him about it, but I don't know whether he's going to use it. Perhaps by nudging the earth a little bit further away from the sun in order to compensate for the greenhouse gases. I don't know anybody who believes that God's going to do that or prays for it. God's way is to speak to us through climate scientists and challenge us through climate activists to change our ways radically and rapidly to avoid doing further harm to the delicate balance of the environment he designed. So Christians should be in the forefront of the move to reduce carbon emissions, to preserve the environment and to protect habitats. God is relying on us. And sadly, some Christians are so focused on heaven that they lose sight of the fact that according to Jesus, what the meek will inherit is the earth. So it's worth protecting. In all these examples, God chooses to depend on us to achieve his will on earth. If God calls me to a particular task, a particular purpose, and if I neglect to do what I'm called to do, I do not believe that God will necessarily meet the need in some other way. He may do. Equally, he may lead the world, the people I was called to serve, to suffer the consequences of my neglect. God has no hands but ours. Frankly, I don't think it matters too much what we believe about God's self-sufficiency. God is what God is, and we will never understand God fully. It is right to recognize that we are dependent on God and that we are not self-sufficient. But the equally important balancing truth is that God chooses to rely on us. And the big question is, can God depend on us to bring about his purposes in the world? Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.